it's not so much about working as a vet. It's about making veterinary work for you and taking control of that and just spin it around a little bit. From Amster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm Dave Nicholl. On today's show, I am joined by Dr. James Greenwood. James is a practicing vet living and working in Bristol, England. Originally from the flat cap, whippet and ferret loving county of Yorkshire, James's family have been farming the Pennine Hills in England for generations. And although his parents chose to leave farming, James inherited the family trait and devoted himself to a life spent in the company of animals. After graduating from Bristol Vet School in 2007, he began career as an equine vet, but like many young vets, quickly began to struggle with a life after graduation and slowly fell out of love with his career. Now what makes James a little different was his ability to find balance and rediscover a passion for veterinary medicine again by connecting with his more creative side. Throughout his life, James harbored a dual love, on one hand science, but on the other hand art. Although originally trained to paint, his artistic creativity developed into a deep love for ceramics. After pursuing his passion in developing a personal brand on Instagram, he was invited to compete on the first series of BBC Two's The Great Pottery Throwdown, where he showcased his skills to the nation and earned his fame. He has now made incredible ceramics for many celebrity pet lovers and has further developed his TV vet status by appearing on the children's television series The Pets Factor. Now before we jump into the episode, I wanted to drop a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the VetX Thrive community. If you are a young vet looking to find your feet in veterinary medicine, grow your confidence, avoid burnout and beat your inner imposter, then VetX Thrive is for you. As a community member, you'll receive 12 success skills training modules, access to experienced mentors, and incredible toolkits to help you thrive in your career. A year-long membership is available for just $275, and if you use the podcast promo code, which is podcast, you will receive a further 10% discount. Head over to vetxthrive.com to redeem this offer and take control of your career. Now back to the show. James's interview was a real pleasure for me as he bravely and openly shared his experience of mental struggles and inner turmoil, plus how he was able to find a way through to a happier place where veterinary medicine now fits nicely with his other interests. So if you're struggling in practice, I hope this episode speaks to you and offers some insight into how you too can find balance and happiness in the wonderful world of veterinary medicine. So without further ado, I present to you my conversation with the fabulous Dr. James Greenwood. James, welcome to the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I've been following your escapades and antics on Instagram, um, where I generally just cyberstalk most of my guests. <laughs> so don't feel too uncomfortable. About no, that. don't worry. I'm just going to uh, get my coat out and good luck for the rest of the show. <laughs> there's a notable distance appeared in the, in the audio there. The reason I wanted to get you on, there's, there's a number of reasons. We're going to explore this in a conversation. But before we get going into that conversation... I would love for you because, and actually for me as well, because we're, we live in this curious world now where you can make connections across miles, across hill ranges, forests, oceans, the other side of the planet, and I've never actually met somebody. And already today, two or three people have come up to me, waved at me and said, hi, and I'm yeah. like, oh, I don't know who you are. Yeah. And you must have this sort of same thing going on all of the time where people get to know you and you have interactions, but all you see is a face and an avatar, and then you have to make the connection in real life. So I know about the Instagram you, mm-hmm. 
I hope what we'll find out is a bit more about the actual you. Yeah. Okay. I have the suspicion that you're going to be quite an interesting person and that oh, we can no. all learn something. The pressure now. Already. No pressure, no build up there, but you know, every other podcast guest has been amazing so far, so don't blow it now. So good. Okay. Take us back in time and obviously our audience are veterinary, but just give us a sense of what sparked this desire to move into the profession that you have? I, I see in your posts, in the work that you do, a passion for what you do and the space that you work in within mm. veterinary. So take us back in a dim and distant past to a wee lad in Yorkshire. All those years Where it all ago. began. Oh, and sorry. give us the backstory. <laughs> okay, well, uh, yeah, I grew up in, in Yorkshire. We were sort of in a semi-rural location. You've online. lost the accent, I must say. Uh, do you know, I know. I'm I guessing a posh school. There, I? I need to get back. I need to get back up there. Like, you know. <laughs> Better. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, shall I do that for the rest of the no, interview? No, no, no. no, no. Okay. You'll um, lose all the Americans. Uh, yeah, okay. Grew up in, in Huddersfield, and my not my immediate sort of parents, but my grandparents were were farmers and I, I just i always had as i suspect the huge number of vets that are listening to this had which is that i just had this sort of crazy adoration and fascination for animals and i think it genuinely did just start as a um, desire to to work with animals but also to learn more about them to just study them and, and, and what have you to start with i wanted to be a farmer and that was my sort of big thing what sort um, of farming was your family into what, what well like? they were back then it was it was sort of everything so they had a few pigs a few cows predominantly a dairy. small holding kind of thing it was a fairly decent sized farm and then my grandfather then had an engineering company that actually developed the you know you see the huge hoppers the feed hoppers and he was uh, one of the first companies to install automatic feeding systems on farms, which they're probably now farmers going, oh, that's the reason why cows are failing. <laughs> but back then, it was kind of pretty revolutionary to, yeah. you know, to have these automatic feeding systems. And again, I think that sort of sparked this sort of fascination into animal husbandry. Maybe. So I, I suppose that's the early years. Um, Skip forward to school, I was very creative and sort of this artistic side of me that started to kind of really develop and I took all the way through to A-level. And I suppose my school years were always a slight conflict between do I want to go down a creative route and be brave enough to go down that sort of artistic and sort of creative line, which I, to this day, I kind of a part of me does think, God, I wonder if I should have had a go at it. But I don't regret the decision to go into veterinary by any means. And I think at the time I decided that actually the art is something that I could always have. Whereas to be a vet, there is only one way to do that, which is I would have to become a vet. And so it was just sort of this natural progression that I wanted to go into veterinary science. So so that was it. Applied, got my A-levels, and uh, and that was it. I was off to off to Bristol Vet School. So qualified for Bristol in, what was it now, 2007? Oh, my word, which makes me 11 years qualified, which I think we'll gloss over that. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going there, I'm certainly keeping my mind shut. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that's the background, I suppose, yeah. I think this is fertile ground for a good conversation because okay. one thing I have noticed in a lot of our colleagues is, and we're, we're very much the scientists, and I've noticed this in business as well. I have a very good friend, Megan, hi Megan, who is part of a little mastermind group that I, I meet with two or three times a year. She is very much business-minded, but she's of the artistic persuasion as well. And she has this amazing theory, which she has to write her book about, telling you now, Megan. Yeah, um, come on, Megan. Come on, <laughs> Megan, get on with it. Stop procrastinating like an artist. <laughs> we know that. There's two kinds of business people. And I'm going to circle this back to veterinary in yeah, just yeah. a second. One is the, the kind that's into building a business, the making of money, the scaling 
But there's another kind, and it's not well defined, and this is what I think she's really touched on something, and that is the artist who's a business person who wants to create a body of work. And what I see when I look in the veterinary profession, and I think your work in the ceramics and it's, it's really sculpture that you do, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's crafting yeah. pottery, but it's, yeah, yeah. it's sculpting, really. And uh, I see many great artists and musicians and people with multi-talents in veterinary medicine who all, we all get funneled down this science route and it doesn't quite fit. It's an interesting place to converse. And I wonder, is that thought that kept recurring to you as you went through your education? Like, how did it feel in the education process? Like, let's go through there, first of all. And okay. I, I say it simply because I felt very much like a fish out of water mm. um, during the education process. And I would now be able to look back and say, because there's, there's probably a lot more artist in me than there is mm. scientist. Mm. How was your experience at college of, of going through that process? I think, for me, I, I certainly was never the front runner in academia at Check. university. Yeah, exactly. You know, as, so, as are many of the guests on this which podcast. Is the vast majority of vets are, you know, are probably of that, of that sort of caliber as well. Going through university, I ebbed and flowed with it a little bit. I sort of, sometimes I felt really connected with it and sometimes I thought that I'd made a massive mistake. I what were the times you connected and when did you think you'd made a big mistake? I connected with when we were doing animal management. I connected when there was animals involved. So husbandry. So the husbandry yep. side of things, the kind of actual let's talk about animals. When I became very disconnected with was the scientific subjects, you know, the physiology and the, so the more hands-on pharmacology stuff and anything that ends in ology. Ology. I was a bit like, you know, I don't think I really want to know that much about this. Biochemistry, oh my word, the Krebs cycle, all that sort of stuff. You know, how many times have you used <laughs> the Krebs cycle in your professional This is what life? I'm trying to say. So I went through university. I, the thing that I loved about university and to this day I am so grateful is the people that I've met. Right. The friends that have come out of university are my friends for life and that I cannot knock, and I would never replace that in a million years. Yeah, and and I think the sort of the balance between art and science for me, yes, it, it, that conflict has always carried on through. So, sort of through university, I was doing very. I mean, so to put it into perspective, basically, my for me to get into vet school, I knew I had to get. I think it was two A's and a B in A level, and the universities actually allowed me to use art as one of the subjects well, that I could have as an A. So it wasn't even that I could have that as a B. They were quite prepared for me to have and what math or chemistry or something. On, on and then I had to have chemistry as an A. That was their sort of absolute stipulation. Which you know, looking back, I just think, my God, I'm so so proud of that. And yet at the time, it felt quite sort of normal to me because that was what I was doing. I was doing science and art, and I took them both as far as I could. And then I qualified into not qualified, but got into vet school. And I think I was so overwhelmed by the fact that I actually managed to get into vet school that I then completely turned my back on the arts right. and just went head full into surrounding myself with what I presumed were other scientific people. It was time to be really sort of studious and let's, let's be proper vets and, you know, properly understand all this science. Were we and all actually, pretending at vet school? Well, yeah. And I just, you know, and looking back, I think it was a bit foolish, really, because actually I, I shouldn't have ever really turned my back on the arts. Yeah. So then fast forward and I'm sort of six years qualified, feeling really disillusioned and feeling quite unsure what I was doing in my career full stop. Should I even be a vet? I started down a, a route to reawaken my creative side, basically, which started off with doing night school ceramic classes. 
I say ceramics, it sounds a bit cooler than pottery. <laughs> uh, but basically, I started a pottery class. This is it. I sort of, I pushed myself into my did early you, 60s and took up pottery. Did you, 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 it was just like, that was your Patrick Swayze moment? I don't know about that. Out. I don't know about that. I think it was more, you know, kind of. Uh, Clay spattered everywhere. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I took that up and, and I just immediately, it was like. I, I know it sounds ridiculous. It sounds quite gushy, but it was a bit of a moment. It was a bit of a spark that kind of just reawakened within me. And I suddenly thought, my God, this is what has been missing. I've missed using the thing that I love the most, which is my art, to balance out my life. And, and I think all the way through, that's what I'd done. And for the last sort of eight, ten years, I, I hadn't done. So, yeah, they can run together. I mean, I've quite slightly sort of, I've slightly gone into too much detail. Yeah. It's essentially, science and art can run together. I think this is a wonderful theme for us to explore. And, and actually, the, the sense of balance, that word there is, is a particularly interesting word for us to, I think, I'm going to signpost that and maybe come back to it. And don't let me forget, because I'll forget. <laughs> we're both going to forget, aren't we? Yeah. There's no chance we're going to come back to that. But let's go back. So just if we can, we're going to bounce a little bit around on your yeah. timeline here. But if we were to go back to your early career then, so you found your way into vet school, you've then been rushed with the flow of sciencey wincey types at vet school, done your thing, sort of abandoned the arts for just now, and then you've gotten out into practice. Let's push play on that part. And, and what happens next? Because you started out in equine practice, is that right? Yeah, I wanted to go into equine practice. I moved actually to Jersey in a fantastic first job yeah. in a tier three hospital. To this day, I still sort of use the stuff that I learned there and, and you know, touching and stuff. So, but unfortunately, I think living on Jersey, there's a few personal things as well as to why I kind of felt that I needed to get back back home almost and, and sort a few things out. Is that anything you would share or not share? Uh, it was basically my sexuality. Okay. You know? So I was I was in a complete mess and really struggling with it. So that sort of happened and, and I uh, I came back. And I wanted to then push into more equine. So yeah. I then took a, a predominantly equine job yeah. and went into that route. So you've got this massive sort of conflict building in you. You know, you've not got the art as a stabilizing influence. You're working out who you are in the world. You're in Jersey, which is kind of an isolated place. You could have just flipped out there and then. You seem very much like you've got your act together at this point in time. Life seems on track for you. But for all of us, it's never quite on track. You're never like, I would say to people, like when we look at our social media posts, never look at the social media posts and think that's life. That's just not life. That's our version of life that's there. How did you get your life to the point? And I'm, I'm actually curious because I am sure there are, there are people listening to the podcast will struggle with the same things that you've struggled with as well. Um, heck, we could start with, because I hear there's, there's, you know, equine is a tough place to go work as a graduate and seems to have quite a high attrition rate for people working out your sexuality and, and coming out into the world that's got to be a challenging thing to do also as moving ourselves around the whole country and 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 for you as well having this artistic sort of not war but this awakening that was yet to come in you talk us through some of the the sort of decision points and the experiences and the the things you know is there anything you can share with listeners about any of those situations i think let's start with equine how did that pan out for you in the equine world? And the thing that I struggled with equine was the hours that it took out of me. Yeah, you know, to work. F- I was working full time, on call, weekends, weeknights. What was your roster like? Your rota? I think it was five days a week, weekend on call, 
I think you've got a day off from Lou for that. So you'd be so on call in the evening as well as during the day? So, I th- yeah, I, you know, I can't remember. It's quite a long time ago. Was, I think it was about... <laughs> you're you're basically yeah. just blanked it to uh, try yeah. and forget no, no, the pain. No, no, no. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> one in six weeknights. Yeah. And then one in six weekends. Yeah. It was. I think this is one of the things that's hard being a vet is that obviously this could then be misinterpreted by the practice that I was working for as a dig and it's certainly not. Yeah. I think I take responsibility in my own self here yeah. to say that I let myself burn out. I yeah. let myself get to the point where I should have raised my hand and said, this isn't really working for me. And I think basically what happened was I kind of just, I was on a bit of a race to the bottom. I was sort of, I was just crashing. Yeah. And I think basically what happened was I just reached a point where I just had to stop. And I did literally, you know, it sounds ridiculous, but I did reach rock bottom to sort of then think, okay, this isn't where I want to be. This isn't, a good place to be. No. How did you know you were there? Because I, I get the sense that some people get there and they don't, they're not aware. I know. That's part I of just, the reason why people can't pull out of it. I think I just thought this is just not great. I just knew. I, did, I just, I just felt it's really hard. It's quite hard for me to talk about and I don't mind talking about it. It was a difficult time. I think I got to the point where I just thought this can't get any worse. Yeah. And if it gets worse, it's going to seriously get worse. And I thought, I don't want to be that person. So what can I change? What can I change? What's wrong? And what can I change to change that in my personal life, in my work life, in my enjoyment of things that I do outside of life? And that's where it sort of began. And that's re- that is literally where my life kind of then began. You had awareness. Thankfully, you had that self-awareness. Things were bad. What were the steps then you took to, to turn the corner and, and move your life and to, to start this new beginning? I met my partner which was a huge turning point. We got a dog. Like you have a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a lovely relationship. Yeah. You know, very, very happy. With the cutest dog on the whole planet. With the dog. No, I mean, now we actually... need to talk about their dog. <laughs> no, if we're going to talk no about anything. not getting away from that. <laughs> if we're going to talk about anything, let's go to the dog. <laughs> Gorgeous dog, Oliver, who, you know, is just life. It is our I, life. I, mean, I'm not, I don't want you to feel bad about this, but he is the star, basically, of your Instagram. Yeah, I get that. I get that. <laughs> I, get that. I use him. If I you could know. add him for an hour and a quarter, not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I should have brought him. Should have. You should. Um, I did take a break from vetting. I took probably about three months off. Did you rescue him with his injury? Oliver has. We're going back one, to Oliver. One okay. eye. We're, go- <laughs> we're going back to Oliver. The big subject. Yeah. Okay. Let's me. let's go over mental health. Let's go back to Oliver. <laughs> okay. We'll cut it. Oliver is good for mental health. This is exactly. soothing for the audience. Exactly. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, so tell me about Oliver has mis- missing an eye. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's as most vets have. We have we like our fairly crocked animals. What's yeah. the story? So he was. It was when I was in equine practice, and I had a vet student with me in the car, and we were thinking about getting a dog at the time. And uh, the vet student said, "No, my sister, who was also a vet, has her Labrador's just had a litter. Would you like to, to have a look?" And she pulled out her phone and showed me this sort of, because back, I mean, this is 10 years ago, so it was a fairly grainy photograph on her Nokia, whatever it would have been, of this little Andrex puppy staring out of this kind of cupboard with this one eye. And I can't tell you, it was the moment I just melt. I was just like, right, that we need that in our life. I need that dog in my life. So, yeah, so she sort of said, oh, you know, why don't you come and see him? So we said, yeah, okay, you know, great, let's, let's go. So we went. Bearing in mind, the photograph was probably when he was about six weeks old, and he'd already lost his eye. He got he got attacked by an adult dog, a fractured skull, lost an eye, and it was all very all very traumatic. But he's obviously he survived. So we get there. This 
maybe sort of 11 and a half week old gangly puppy comes bounding up towards us. Mum takes a dump in the garden. Oliver goes straight over to it, starts eating it. And I was just like, oh, wow. That's not quite, it's like the worst Tinder date you've ever been on. I was like, that, that's not what your profile picture said. That would be a bad one. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, okay, okay. Unlike, unlike. Yeah, so so we, we sort of, at this point, felt pretty committed. So bundled him up, took him home. And uh, for the next, let's say, 24 months at least, he was an absolute handful. Proper little, you know, what have you. Yeah, and then he just calmed down, like all Labradors do, and just, just became the most gorgeous dog. And now he's this placid, lovely kind of uh, companion. He's a joy to follow on Instagram, I have to say. Okay, so I'm going to let Oliver go. But I think a nice segue into that was, so let's talk about the journey out of the improvement in mental health. Let's get back to that. Oliver. Oliver's good. Oliver's shout. I'm not going to promise he's gone. <laughs> like, I'm, a, I'm a little gooey as we all are for Oliver. <laughs> so it might, Oliver may yet crop up, but okay. I will unleash Oliver to run away in the paddock over on the side <laughs> yeah. where we can talk about mental health. So back to that. So yeah, yeah we had Oliver I, with my partner and... And I think that was it. I think subconsciously, I, you know, I'm definitely not a list person. People say, write down what you like, write pros and cons. That's just not me. To pick up a piece of paper and write something down yep. was never going to happen. But in my head, I thought, okay, you know, what, what can we change here? And I recognized that working full time for me was just not feasible long term. Yeah. It's not a dig at anybody. It's not a dig at any of the practices I've ever worked at. I'm, I, I have always had a very good working relationship with all my practices. I think that's one of the difficulties that people find about talking about veterinary medicine is that it's not personal to anybody it's just personal to me right this is, this is my journey through being a vet there's the I work and then there's our yeah, response you know, to the work isn't my there? response to the work right. rather than the work inflicting something on yeah. me but i did recognize that full-time work is is something that just wasn't feasible for me long term and yeah. so i took a break and at that point i i genuinely was very close to leaving veterinary medicine i sort of we had a long discussion at home and i was you know, I was probably only about four years out and I was very close to thinking, shall I retrain? But something in me sort of thought, well, no, I do. I, there are definitely elements of this job that I utterly adore and would really miss if I turned my back on it. So I decided to take a maternity job cover for nine months. I think it was three days a week, small animal practice, no on call, one Saturday and four, something like that. Back down in Bristol. So we moved location. Yeah. And it was amazing. And it really did sort of make me think, okay, you know, there, there are other ways of doing this. You know, there are ways of, of making veterinary work for you. I know that there's a lot of people out there will be right now connecting with what you're saying. You know, it's the hours. It's the, we know from this new study that's been published by the BVA, they're saying more in the female half of our peers there seems to be a relationship between the, you know, basically the rejection of the long working hours that go there. And if you reject that, then this profession is not necessarily a great fit or doesn't, there's a disconnect that happens that fuels that leaving. So I know a lot of people out there are going to be thinking, I like what James is saying. How though can I afford to live and do that? So how did you mm. make that transition from being able to, you know, because we all have to fund, we all have to live our lives. Yeah, yeah. So how did you fill in the blank? I cut back basically we found houses that cost less rent we didn't go out as much and i just you know i actively chose to reduce my lifestyle at the time you know it was easy enough the other thing that now looking back i think it's something that i had to have a few years experience in my belt to be able to make part-time 
work work for me as well. How? Which I think is say more about that. What do, in what sense do you mean that? With veterinary, you develop a confidence. You develop a, a skill, an acting skill, almost. Again, it sounds really cheesy. It's the art of veterinary science, isn't it? It's being confident to walk into a room, take control of a situation, deliver the goods in a way that is completely, you know, confident without being arrogant you know, driven without being pushy. It's difficult to do and it takes practice. Unfortunately, it's not to say that newly qualified vets can't do it. Some can really do it straight away. But for me, it took practice. And I think that with 10 years now under my belt, I'm going to say 10 rather than 11 because I'm just going to pretend I'm You're going to round it down. I'm still going to pretend. I noticed it. I was going to gloss over it. <laughs> but I think having that experience, you know, I now I'm hugely grateful for because for me to now work two or three days a week, I don't, it doesn't enter my mind that I'm either missing out on clinical cases or that I might miss a phone call from somebody, yeah. you know, you can manage it. And I can say to the, the nurses, I can say to the reception team, you know, if this client calls, I want you to call me yeah. on my day off because this is an important thing that I need to follow up. And you're not grumpy client, about it because no, it's not cutting in on your time. No, exactly. Whereas if that client calls, that's mundane stuff. It's booking a booster. You don't need to contact me about that. That's where the team comes into so play as well. You've learned a lot of communication skills, I think. Yeah. And I think the other thing is now, I qualified in a time when communication skills, we did a bit of it, you know, yeah. and, you know, it was kind of, let's have a pretend consult. But I think now I speak with new graduate vets and their, you know, their sort of understanding of communication skills, their reflective learning is just brilliant. And I think it's so important that that carries on because I think that is genuinely a skill that rather than having to learn it on the job, I think that's amazing if you can qualify with a few extra tools in your belt to think, how do I cope with these situations? Then that is exactly what the profession needs, I think. A hundred percent agree. You mentioned again, it keeps coming back to the art, you know, the theater of the act, as it were, of producing a good client experience or a relationship with a client. Did you do anything to foster that? My thespian skills. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't know. I, I mean, I did drama at school and stuff. And I loved indeed, it. he said. Uh, yeah, exactly. Flamboyant. <laughs> yeah. I do see it as a stage, though. You know, when you think about the job that we do, in fact, a really interesting thing happened the other day. For the first time in 11 years, I had put a, a dog to sleep. Very upsetting. The client was really upset. I knew them fairly well. So, but, you know, yeah. well, I, wasn't, I didn't come out of it, you know, massively affected or crying. You know, you sometimes yep. might do. But it was awful. It was horrible. And straight into a puppy consult, straight into a booster. And, you know, obviously I'm already 10 minutes behind and it's just a constant, every 10 minutes your patter changes, you have to change how your appearance, you change how you talk to people. And for the first time ever, a client actually said to me, would you like to have five minutes before? I was already running late. So I was already thinking, you know, I've really got to get going with this. And she actually said, I'm not in any rush. Do you want to take five minutes? I thought, my God, you know, in 11 years, that's the first time that's that somebody has, has recognized very and empathetic said, of that yeah, client, wasn't really it? really amazing. When you put it in terms like that, and it's sometimes you just get moments of insight, it's really no wonder that we're so emotionally exhausted at the end of every day, is it? Because you're absolutely right. The grinding gear changes that we have to go through, and a lot of us do lack that emotional intelligence, which is really the clutch that allows us to be able to get through those gear changes a bit more easily and without as much damage to our gear costs. Yeah. It just isn't there for a lot of vets when we're selected as high science yNC driven people. So it's just an interesting insight to be gleaned from what you said as much as anything else. Let's maybe segue across into now, you know, so you're now in small animal. You're working part-time. 
And there's two branches we can go. Obviously, I'd love to talk more about the, the TV career and how that's taken off. But let's talk about the, the pottery, first of all, because okay. that's, there's no getting away from the artist in you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, let's explore there. So when was the moment you were like, actually, maybe going back, you, know, you always felt you had this artistic thing. You, t- you got an A in your A-level art which is pretty incredible. I, I remember back to the people, I got a C in my art. I did art as a six-year study, basically, because I got my entrance to, to university sorted and I had a free pick of anything without having to worry about what I was doing my final year at school. So I chose stuff I could goof around doing and rugby. And so I chose art and I got my C and I was very proud. Now, I could never have gotten an A and I could, I could look at the people who got the A's and they were so much better. That's, they, made, they were, that's made me sound like a bit of a knob saying it, hasn't it? No. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> your words, not mine. To get an A takes work. So how did that express itself in your earlier life? You know, you've talked about how you felt you abandoned it and, and it's almost a peer pressure thing. And then how did it reemerge later in life and how did it help you? Yeah, I did. I turned my back on it. And I think it was when I had then taken up this maternity contract. So I was already, I'd got myself some time back. And I thought, okay, you've got time. What are you going to do with it? And it was, it was this thing of, well, let's start doing some of the stuff that I love doing, you know, that I innately love doing rather than feel I should do it or, or yes. you know, or ticking boxes. So I was like, I'm going to find something creative. And I was in a house show at the time. And the, the, one of the housemates was, um, she'd given up a huge career. Like, you know, I, I mean, I don't, I can't remember what it was, but it was something amazing. And she was driving around this super posh car. And uh, she was in the house show with me. I was like, this doesn't really make sense. But basically, she had sort of had a similar epiphany and uh, had had given up her job and had gone back into her love, which was jewellery making. And so she was on a, an evening course at one of our adult education centres in Bristol called yeah. the Folk House. And she said, oh, you know, they, they do loads of courses. You should check them out. And they do. They literally do everything from drawing through to photography to, to ceramics, everything. So I got the brochure up and I saw ceramics and it was a, a day course. So it was a Tuesday, which was my day off. So I'm like 10 till four. It was a few hundred quid, fine, but it was sort of a six week term. And I thought, I'm going to try it and I'm just going to go for it and see. How did you feel when you made that decision? It was really liberating. Weird. It's so, it's so sort of odd to say it, isn't it? But I just, it gave me a whole new aspect on everything, on what life was, what my purpose was. And then over time, what's happened is that has then made me fall in love with veterinary because I'm no longer reliant on it. And that kind of balancing the two and, and sort of feeling like veterinary doesn't dictate to me what I can do. I'm doing what I want to do sure. as well as being a vet. Almost doing, and, I, and, and, and please don't take this, it's not intended in this way at all, but it's almost like you're doing hobbies as you're... And that's how you stay in love with something. Mm. You know, when you're reliant on it, when you're dependent on it, when you have to show up and even when you're past the point where it's, it's a sensible thing for you to be doing anymore and you still have to go, it's a grind. But when you choose to do something, there's a different relationship with that thing, be what that thing is. Is that a reasonable summation? I totally get it. And to give you an example of that, to sort of jump forward then, there's a television bit in the in between and then I started doing some ceramics trying to reach as a sort of a commercial level and I started making dog bowls which just went crazy and and it was amazing and I was so desperate to find my own style with ceramics and it was my big sort of thing was like I'm gonna again I took about three months off vetting and I just started making and making and making how much did you make in that time frame and not money I mean I probably made over the well so I threw myself in it for about three months and I probably made over a thousand bowls 
Wow. She just, just went for it. I'm just like, I'm going to make the That wheel is... And my kale gun... Wheel out. Yeah, exactly. And my kale gun, what joke, is about the size of a microwave. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you can imagine it was the most ridiculous setup. Okay, so I want you to talk us through the process. I'll give you background here. I was thinking of this interview and I thought, I'm going to ask this question. So about four weeks ago, I am sat in Brighton and there's a little ceramic shop where you mm-hmm. go in and you can get all sorts of things they've pre-made and, and nothing of quality at all. Of course, my daughter chooses the thing of the most gaudy, least quality <laughs> that she can possibly choose, Amazing. which is the fairy with on the unicorn, which I'm just going, don't choose the fairy. Don't choose it. Both <laughs> the sugar skull or like the candle or the plate or something easy. <laughs> She's straight in on the unicorn. Straight in the fairy. I yeah. mean, it, it wasn't obvious to see, but she saw it in it. So it must be some like subliminal or like child, six-year-old messaging thing going on. She sees a fairy. So now I've got a pen this damn fairy and it's the most intricate damn thing. And of course, six-year-olds get bored in about two seconds. So we can't just leave this half-baked, half-painted fairy to get glazed. So we have to paint the damn thing. So we paint it and it looks kind of crappy. And then they <laughs> say, no, it's, it's not going to look crappy. None of the colors look like the real colors. And then they glaze it and you come back and you go, and it's, it's oh my totally transformed, doesn't it? This yeah. is... This is a thing of art. This is a, <laughs> yes. this is a thing somebody would display in their yeah, mantelpiece. And that's it. And so talk us through the process. I'm really so fa- that, I'm fascinated that by the creation. Is the magic. That's, right. That is the absolute magic. So ceramics is, I mean, craft in general is just incredible. It, it has so many health benefits. But for me, ceramics was the one that I chose. And basically the various steps of turning a lump of mud into something that you can eat your dinner off goes through <laughs> a number of uh, stages. So first of all, you have your raw clay, yeah. which often is, is you buy from a commercial clay distributor, so it's, yep. it's ready to use. You kind of warm that up, you wedge it up, and then you make whatever you're going to make, whether that's on the wheel or whether that's on, on hand building. Yep. It then dries out, and that's what we call greenware. So you've got the clay goes from being very soft and you know will move around to you can then pick it up and it's dried out. Got it. That then has to be go through the kiln the first time, and that's your okay. biscuit firing. That is then when you picked That's up your fairy. I got it. <laughs> so your fairy was so biscuit. The fairy wet. had had a bit of work to yeah, this point. Yeah, so he, so that was already at that stage. And that's called what? Sorry, that's called biscuit or Bis- bisque. It can either be the biscuit a French or bisque. word, which is bisque, a bit got like it. the sort of soup, or biscuit is, okay. is what some people call it. And that's when it comes out pure white. Right. You then glaze it. You give that a bit of a rub do down, down and a wipe down, off. Right. Wipe it off. And then you glaze it, which can either be paint on glazes, which you've used, and they kind of go on and they look very pastely coloured. Yes. Or you can dip the glaze, or you can spray the glaze, or you can decorate well, loads then of different ways dip to pastely thing in in clear glaze, molten glass, or something like yeah, that, yeah, and yeah, it yeah. lit this thing up. So what was that? So that's another glaze on top. So you've used undergaze, which this is, is a whole world. Is, this is it. You know, this, this is, is so many steps. Let's stuff it's actually, actually stuff. And Let's also, do a podcast it's all about actually, pottery. Yeah, exactly. It's also also quite scientific. There's so much chemistry behind ceramics. You know, the glaze the recipes, and you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, using different. Anyway, we could go into all of that, but we won't. But essentially, you mean like some colors and paints will react with the glaze differently. Yeah, exactly. Cobalt, and and then you use sort of hydroxides and the powders and and potash, and you literally buy in chemicals, mix them together, make a glaze, put it on your pottery, put it through the kiln, and it can come out a hundred different times, completely different every single time. It's amazing. The transformation is what becomes addictive. Yeah. I think as vets, we aren't necessarily great at coping with failure. But one thing that will teach you how to cope with failure is to put a pot that you've worked your blood, sweat and tears into the kiln and see the mess that comes out the other side. (laughs) And you just think, how has that happened? I'm sure it looks nice when it went in. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, now, I heard this lovely thing in my VETEX group, support group for students. We have uh, the guys and the, the community members post things in that they find interesting to support the rest of the group. And somebody posted in a picture of a bowl, a Japanese bowl. And what they'd said in, and perhaps you can fill us in a little more on this, is when they break a bowl in Japan, they, they fix it, but they fix the cracks with gold. With gold, yeah. Kintsugi is called. All right. So tell yeah. us about Kintsugi. Well, that's it. I mean, that, this, so this is the joy of ceramics and, and the art of turning something that you might think is now no longer usable into something even more beautiful. So you use gold, which is far more expensive, obviously, than the clay or the glazers to fix them. Now, there is something of profound wisdom in all of this, I think. There's something just joyous even talking about it, which which I hope, like, I, I feel the conversation is just lit up now we start talking <laughs> about art. The wisdom from, from that particular technique, did you say Kinsugi? Is it? Kinsugi. Kinsugi. I think. I think. Okay. I, I am not going to question. I'm going to be butchering <laughs> that for sure. So. But that, something that's broken and then making it beautiful with gold so it's perfectly usable again. And then I read a quote from Rumi saying the, the scar, the wound is where the light enters you and shapes you. There's something of that. There's a contact sport about life, isn't there? And it's not your failures that define you it's your response to the failures yeah. what you learn i think my last podcast guest roland said something very very wise and he said don't lose the lesson in the loss there's always something to be gained and that's what that gold stripe is that's that's what the imperfection and the Absolutely. embracement of that is what do you get from that process then like i get a sense of meditation if i'm honest okay. here we go let's really go let's go now. there let's just go there so you know we, we go through this at the moment, the big keywords of mindfulness and meditation stuff, which I do not knock, but I can't do it. I yep. just can't do it. Yep. I've tried the apps. I've tried, yep. you know, to sort of, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah. When you make, and that doesn't have to be ceramics. This might be if you knit or if you do crochet or even if you garden, whatever it is, if you play an instrument, the point is for you to do that and do that well takes you 100% into that place to, to make it work. And when you're doing ceramics, that's exactly where you have to be. Your mind cannot be anywhere else. Otherwise, the bowl will fly off the wheel. And it is, it's that literal. And, it, and that sort of switching off and just completely kind of letting go is something that I cannot do consciously. I can't do that. If I'm lying in a room on my own, deep breathing, you know, umming and ahhing, it just doesn't do anything. I just start thinking, I want to go and have my tea. I'm so hungry. Whereas ceramics does make me do that. You know, I do genuinely switch off. And I think that's yeah. where it kind of saved me a little bit. And, uh, you know, amazing. And it's opened so many doors for me. I mean, it all started by giving myself time is the first thing. Finding what was missing, which was artistic endeavors. Yes. Opening the door to, to ceramics. The ceramics then led in directions that I couldn't ever even have dreamt when suddenly I'm looking at Facebook and there's a television show asking for ceramics to appear on the next equivalent of the bake-off and from there it has just literally transformed my life and that you then became i guess at that point dr james pottery vet and then a new version of you the rebirth it was it was like a occurred like a caterpillar to a sort of slightly dusty moth <laughs> uh yeah it was it was You're literally being unkind that, to yourself, uh, that was that was sort of where it so tell me about that so what happened so you've done your pottery you're selling stacks of dog bottles <laughs> yeah of all shapes and sizes and unforeseen colors and things yeah <laughs> you're having fun you're reconnecting with who you are inside i have a question about purpose which is maybe a, another rabbit hole which will be here all day if i take us down that you mentioned purpose earlier and finding that purpose 
And I think that's something that a lot of us struggle with. We get into veterinary medicine. We've chosen when we're, I was 17 when I went to vet school. I was mm. 13 when I first walked into a veterinary practice. No way at that age can you know what your purpose, what you're on this planet to be. So I suspect that a lot of us are in the same shoes, that we've gone down a route because we something. For me, it was my parents heard vet and it wasn't astronaut, fighter pilot or anything really dumb. And so they went all in on that. <laughs> they were like, great, we'll take that in <laughs> yeah. the Wheel of Fortune game. So they chose that. But that doesn't mean it wasn't a great decision for me. Now, for me, it was a good decision in the end, but that was just blind luck, really. And it's not like it's plain sailing all the way through. For you, you found your place in things and found a way of being a vet and enjoying that and everything else. And you've, you've discovered that. And you might not have an answer for this. It's kind of a deep existential question. But how do we go about, do you have an insight through your art into how we go about finding purpose? Like, you found it. Is there a process that you could identify by which you found it? Or did you have to actually go to rock bottom in order to take that time and, and have that gap away to go, this is just what I feel inside would be a good thing for me to experiment with? I think it's probably the latter, to be honest. I think it was a case of, you know, now I look back, come out the other side of something like that, and I hand on heart feel so kind of grateful to have gone through something so sort of emotive because it, it's taught me to, to sort of, it's taught me a lot about myself. It's taught me a lot that in situations I actually can cope, surprisingly. What were the big lessons you learned about you? I learned to take care of myself, <laughs> basically. That was the key, to, to start to love myself. Isn't that so, that sounds like it should be stitched on a napkin or something, but it, it kind of, it was that. Tattooed on all it, of our foreheads so <laughs> in the mirror every morning. As that. It was, it was a case of I, for so long, had hated myself or hidden away who I was and then decided, actually, I feel like inside I am actually a good person. So why am I not feeling like that on the outside? And I wanted to change all of that. Some people listening to this might think, God, is he, what's he talking about? Because you do, you hide it. And, you know, it's all very much internal grief and internal yeah. suffering. Yeah. On the outside, I was happy, you know, new grad, going out, getting drunk, having great times. It was brilliant. And all of that genuinely was really good fun. But at home then, I'd sit there thinking, mm, as this just isn't is really, this really it. This isn't really working. This isn't a good way to go. I think looking for purpose is interesting. So then once I started this big sort of dog ball empire, I quite quickly recognized that I'd lost the love for making these dog balls. And again, I was very quick to recognize that actually I didn't want to go down that route either. So I stopped making them. Not altogether, but I stopped taking in orders, dealing with money. And I think it's because I recognized that the two things that I loved in life was my art and animals. The animals side of things with veterinary has slightly been contorted in a way that I don't think I've ever lost my love for animals, but they've become a job rather than a passion. And they've become, yeah. it has changed my relationship with animals. Yes. The ceramics, bringing in the aspects of selling and money and the pressure of reaching orders, I recognized that it was going the same way. And so I stopped it and said, no, I want to bring ceramics back to me. It's, this is my thing for me. Yeah. And actually by doing that, I now have regained a lot of the underlying love for animals again. And now I go to work and I just think, this is why I am a vet. This is, I really missed vetting when I was on my own doing this. Studio. That's what shines through on your Instagram when you are posting about animals. It's actual joy. Mm. It's genuine what you're posting out there. Because lots of people post and you just, you just think, 
are they fetally rocking back and forth when they're not <laughs> posting that happy filter that's on there? It's just, it's interesting just listening to you speak because there's something of a, you know, it's your process, it's your exploration. It's about overcoming your fear to explore something that is within you. Mm. And if it's calling to you, then probably you should go scratch that itch in some mm. way, shape or form. Particularly if it's something that's quite a healthy thing to do. Like if it's a serious heroin had, <laughs> habit, <laughs> yeah. then the podcast does not endorse like, necessarily. Yeah. That is a great option for you. <laughs> We're not talking about that. <laughs> there are other ways. There are other ways. And ceramics are just one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Pop for so pop. We go, we put- <laughs> There's a segue I never thought we'd make. But we go everywhere in blunt section. It's, <laughs> that's why it's called as such. So now gone, you're being noticed. You're pottery you're selling your dog bowls like crazy and i have to get a dog to get one of your dog bowls <laughs> I especially made blunt dissection dog bowl yeah. now for the dog i don't I'll know do it. i'll send you cereal bowl <laughs> <laughs> yeah dude that'd be so yeah. fun i would eat with it every day yeah. and take creepy selfies just to, <laughs> yeah. now you get interest from tv so that's the the great i'm going to say the Great British pot off, but that yeah, sounds yeah. like a wrong kind of show yeah, again. Yeah, I think that was that's that gone back to the other show. That was, that's good. Uh, yeah, the Great Pottery Throwdown okay. on BBC Two. That great title, actually. Because I imagine you whack that on yeah. and go for it. It was a surprise hit. It went crazy. It was like for a new series. I think it was one of the highest rated viewed shows on BBC at the time. Amazing. It was amazing. It was great fun. What happened? So the the process through doing that was that quite a natural thing for you to segue into. I think there had always been a bit of a lure of, of sort of going into sort of something like that. And, yep. and when the opportunity came up, I thought, yeah, you need to go for this. This is crazy this is not great. to if you're comfortable. Yeah. In I mean, and situation. the fact that it was ceramics, I was like, is this actually happening? So I've, I've kind of left my, you know, vetting issues and taken up ceramics and suddenly this is in front of me. So I went for it and it was just an incredible experience. Kind of, I knew from day dot. So we, they take you out for this very, um, very nice meal the night before we're all sort of due to start the, the throwdown. And I'm meeting the other potters and I'm like, because uh, I very nearly pulled out of it. Were I you having imposter syndrome at this point? Oh, massively. That's exactly what it is. I, that's a really good way of putting it. Exactly. I hate that phrase, by the way. Oh, no, but that's what it was. It was yeah. just like, I sort of thought, I was looking at myself thinking, what am I doing here? I'd nearly pulled out of it because the challenges came through. They send you the challenge a week or so before you have to do it. And the first challenge was to make six bowls that sat inside each other beautifully. And then the next challenge was to make a sink, a ceramic sink. Oh boy. I just thought, this is so ridiculous. There's no way I can do this. So I called the producer and said, look, this is great that you've offered me the opportunity, but I don't think it's for me. I don't want to be made a mug of and, you know, <laughs> literally make a mug. Of. And so she's like, no, no, seriously, everybody's of the same sort of standard as your own. So, you know, so I went for it and then we're having this dinner and I sort of started chatting to everybody and I said, so how long have you been potting? And Jim said, oh, uh, well, uh, 20, 20, 30 years. Okay. Bearing in mind, I potted for about three years. And then the next person, uh, what about you? Oh, I teach ceramics up in this you know, posh <laughs> private school up in Yorkshire. And I was sort of slowly getting sweaty and sweaty, thinking, oh, God, I'm in it now. What are we going to do? And it was, again, it was just sort of this moment of thinking. And I said to my gran, I was just like, what am I going to do? And she goes, oh, don't worry. You're probably the first one off anyway. <laughs> if that's the expectation of my that, family, that's, that's a Yorkshire right. gran. That's fine. exactly. That's, Thank that's you that's for a the Yorkshire mentality. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, I sort of, it was great fun. So immediately I thought, okay, there's only two ways to cope with this. The first way is, is that you, you drop out, which obviously I didn't want to do. The second one is that you just have a bit of fun. You're not, you, and, and I say this hand on heart, I knew I did not have a chance of winning it. So I went in thinking, just enjoy the ride and i did i loved it and uh, and then that just led on and now that's led on to other tv opportunities 
on the back of that, then I got uh, I got I got an agent in London. That sounds very posh, doesn't it? But I uh, she she approached me and said, "Would you be interested in doing any more TV work?" And I kind of at the time thought, uh, maybe you know, maybe not. But let's I'll go. I'll come and meet you. And we had a chat, and she's yep. absolutely incredible. Really got on, and I thought, yeah, okay, let's start it and see see if we can yep. make anything of it. Yep. And I had a few meetings with various production companies who said, would you consider doing children's work? And I said, I don't think it's really for me. So then, skip forward a year later, nothing's really on the table. I get a knock from a production company saying, we've got a children's show, would you like to do it? And I'm saying, yeah, okay, I'll have a go. <laughs> so, uh, I sort of, uh, but it was lovely. And so, so now we are about to film, gosh, what is it now, series five and six of The Pets Factor, which is a show on CBBC, which I'm immensely proud of. It's a great show. I'm looking forward to the point where my daughter is old enough to enjoy. She, I think she is probably old enough to get into that now. She's just not had an awful lot of TV to this point, but she's uh, she's approaching an age where things like this are becoming more relevant. Yeah. So uh, I'll, be, I'll be pointing her towards some good, wholesome Pets Factor TV for her. Absolutely. What does that bring to your life, the connection to animals, the connection to pets? How does that keep you fired up in a way? Like, which bit of your character does that? Which part of you does the that TV scratch? Stuff. Yeah. Well... Well, why do I do it? It's a question that I have asked myself quite a few times. I think from a veterinary point of view, I am very much a GP vet. And yeah. I like the fact that potentially by me doing this sort of TV work, I'm putting the GP vet back on our screens, yeah. you know, saying this is what being a vet's really all about. It's, right. it's boosters, it's Avalans, it's a great team that you get to work with. And so there's, there's, a, there's a sort of a responsibility there that I, that I enjoy. I think in terms of... The reasoning behind it, it's not narcissistic. It's not that I like to then sort of, you know, show people anything like that. But I think there is there is an element of creativity in it that fulfills me. And I think there's also, if I'm totally honest, it's just really fun. <laughs> it's just a really fun thing it's to do. It's good fun. It's great. You know, I'm here as a vet messing about with a load of TV crew. And we just go, and the whole point is, is that they want you to be having fun. They want you to be happy. So you sort of like, yeah, okay, this is this is great. And that is kind of why I do it. It's a bit of fun, and it's putting a good message out there. Yeah. It can just be about that, can't it? Yeah. Just having fun and not being afraid to do that. Two last little things. We're getting... Uh, I'm really grateful for your time. I want to be respectful of that, as always. Two things. One, congratulations. You've just picked up a vet of oh. the year awards. <laughs> You're not getting away oh, without God, that. God, you brought that up. Yeah, thank you. I've never won an award before. That's pretty cool, isn't well, it? Well, it's a, it's a fantastic accolade to oh, get. Thank you. Like, we're, we are all too good at hi you know hiding our lights under bushels and all that and tall poppy syndrome. and, and, and But no, I think like when you pick up awards, there's reasons for that. So thank congratulations. You. How did that come about? And um, uh, so it's a new awards uh, called the Animal Star Awards, yeah. which are trying to sort of recognize, well, r recognizing the sort of the bond between human and animal. So there's a lot of rescue dogs there. There's a lot of um, sort of, you know, guide dogs. Kika, the guide dog was there, who's, who's fantastic, lovely family. And then there was the, the veterinary charities that we've got. Some, yeah. you know, obviously the street vets and the, some really incredible charities out there that are doing some amazing work for vets at the moment. And, uh, and so, yeah, I got nominated and, and went down to the warden. And it's a nice... And suddenly won it. A it's nice, ridiculous. Nice gong to pick up. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, congratulations to Thank you on you. that. I did see you've been out, I know you've done work with the Brook, and I saw more recently, and closer to my heart, you've been out with uh, Spana. Yeah. Société de Protectrices Animaux de uh, Nord-Afrique. Yeah. Absolutely. Look at that. I haven't, quite, I haven't quite coined that yet. I've got that covered. <laughs> I know that because I knew... And a future podcast guest is Ian Decker, who ah. was the technical director at Spana in Morocco. 
Right. Um, a very interesting and entertaining Kiwi who I saw practice with way back. Wow. Who's now doing amazing things, coordinating a lot of disaster relief stuff in the animal sector, uh, based out in Singapore, I think. Um, so Ian, if you're listening, uh, I'll be getting out there at some point <laughs> to interview you. You're not getting off the hook. And thank you for the Kiwis beating England last weekend as well. <laughs> God bless. How did that work come about? And, and what were you doing out there with Spanner? Uh, Spanner do a lot of great work with, with animals across incredible, North Afri- Africa. Incredible charity. Yeah. Um, well, so when I say these doors open after this sort of media profile, this is one of them. It was it dropped in. I got an email from my agent, Rosemary. She said, Look, this, this has come through. Do you fancy a trip to Morocco? Do you want to go and see how, how this charity is working? And uh, they sent through a briefing of, of what we would go and see and do. And I just I just had to jump at it. I mean, you know, charity work is something that I've never done. I'm, you know, sort of slightly ashamed to say it. But I've, it's, it's just never entered my kind of process of, of working through as a vet. Yeah. And so I went and it was just incredible. I absolutely had the time of my life. It's another factor now in my veterinary kind of career where I see that as just something that I would love to get involved more with. Yeah. Because, you know, we're looking at purpose and we're looking at what's missing in veterinary. And I think ultimately the majority of vets just want to feel like they're making a difference. Well, if you want to make a difference, look at some of these guys that are doing this work out there because it was what you expect vetting to all be about. I'm I'm, so, I'm slightly tongue-tied because it was such... An incredible experience, and it was so moving. And seeing the work, the commitment of these guys and girls and, and people out there, phenomenal. We were like, Spano was the first place I ever spayed a cat, and I went there in between my third and fourth years at university, and under the under the tutelage of other folks out there. And I just saw and learned so much. So, what we'll do is we'll actually put a link in the show notes to Spano and to their organisation. So, big shout out to them. And a big thanks for all the work that you do uh, and, and in uh, hosting people to go out there. So good on you guys. So I'm going to take us to our rapid fire questions now. So you don't have to answer them rapid fire, but it depends how hungry you are for lunch. All right. So uh, they're short questions and you can take them wherever you like. And I won't keep you. you will maybe do four or five of these depending on how funny you are. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, what are you most proud of in your career and why? From any of the aspects of your... I am so proud of myself that I'm still a vet. I'm still in the game. <laughs> what was the single thing that had the biggest impact in your career so far, and why? The ceramics. Which sounds ridiculous, but that is what has changed my life. You're sitting here talking to somebody who makes podcasts for a living now. It's like, nothing sounds ridiculous. I sell hot air for a living. <laughs> I'm, I'm with it, I'm all over it. <laughs> I'm with you, man. <laughs> what was the best piece of advice you've ever given or received probably the best advice i've been given was by my previous boss who said when you're in a consult and you don't know which way to go with something stop and ask that person what would you like me to do and it works brilliantly if you're sort of in those roundabout conversations and it does really work if you just actually stop somebody in the tracks and say what can i do for you what would help you right now open questions all the way hoorah what was the worst piece of advice you've ever given or received without naming and shaming if it yeah. was somebody else? The worst piece of advice I've ever been given was when the S was hitting the fan, I got told to not be afraid to cope. And I thought, you patronizing, you know. <laughs> to not be afraid to cope. <laughs> don't be afraid to cope. Cope. Yeah. What upset you so much about that? Was it Which the ridiculous. that it was... The point is you're providing a service. You know, we've got paying customers. We've got paying clients. 
there is a limit to how much one person can do as Anyone a vet. can cope. Anybody can cope. If all we're trying to do as vets is cope, then we've got a pretty low opinion of ourselves. This is the challenge I have with... This is why I've named VetX Thrive. It's not called VetX Survive. It's the book's not called, like, let's, it's, it's how to thrive. We've got to thrive. Or it's, survival's a rubbish aim, isn't it? Yes, I see why that got under your skin. I'm not going to give any advice like that. What's the best piece of advice that you could give to a young vet listening to this just now? Ah, oh, gosh, it's difficult. I think, for me, looking back now for where I am and, and how it's all kind of ended up working out as such, is that I think it's, it's not so much about working as a vet. It's about making veterinary work for you and taking control of that and just spin it around a little bit. What's the favorite thing you bought in the last six months? Oh, that's easy. That is two Raku pigs. <laughs> right. What the hell raku. is that? So is Raku, raku is a type of ceramics, obviously pottery, right. where you I'm rapidly fire. So you take a piece of clay, put it into a, a really heat it up really quickly, pull it out of the of the bin, throw it into wood chip, let it all burn off, throw it into water so it cools down really quickly, and you get this amazing sort of like black and white crackled effect Ooh. on it. And I've got two pigs that there's an amazing potter called Christine Cummings and she does animal sculptures. I've got a goat of hers, which I love, and I bought two pigs. Yeah, I'm going to have to link to her as well now. Oh, let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. She's, I just, you, you will love her work. Everyone it's will amazing. get links in the show, by the way. Yourself and Chloe, like, yourself primarily. That is the most favorite thing I've bought myself in a long time. <laughs> I love it. That's the, I think that's the best cool thing I've had on the show. Yeah, actually. All right, James, let's wind this up. If you could send, I know you're, you're more an Instagram chap, so let's go with that. If you could send one Instagram post, be it a picture or a message to the world, what would it say and what would the picture be of? It's got to be Oliver. <laughs> Is the right answer. It's got to be Oliver. I, like that. I was going to edit anything else out. Whatever just, I said. I was, yeah. it, you, it was just a really clunkily had you going, it is Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> I think just to spread a bit of joy from that Labrador. And I probably wouldn't even write anything. I think I'd just put a photograph of him and let people just decide for themselves. <laughs> we have to put that as now. That's going to be the podcast lead image as well now. Yeah. James, it's been great speaking to you. I know that my listeners are going to want to know more about you. And I don't even know if they can still buy a doggy bowl from you, but they can probably have a look at your, your ceramics. And I'm sure they can hassle you. I'm sure you're available to work for vast fees to make some lovely custom art for people. Absolutely. Um, if people want to get in touch, follow you, and we obviously we'll put all these links into the show notes, but where's the best place? How do you like people to get in touch with you? Instagram is really where I'm at now. So it's at Dr. J Greenwood. So DRJ Greenwood is where I'm, I'm kind of putting all my content. So yeah, come and follow me. It'd be amazing. A wonderful feed it is too. Thank you. I think there's so much wisdom in your words. The weaving together of the joy of working with animals alongside the, the foundation, you know, the, your core of the art and the balance, coming back to that sense of balance, that's the overriding take home for me is not being afraid or letting fear stop you doing something that's in there. And it's okay to balance up that art with that science. You can do both. And there's a way. And the other thing that really struck out to me was, you know, the TV stuff took off but isn't that just a classic example of there's no such thing as luck. It's preparedness meets opportunity. That's what happened to you because you opened up to that. Exactly. What it's a wonderful story. You know, you've got many, many chapters of that to write. I wish you all the absolute best for what you're doing. Thank you Keep so much. Keep spreading the love and more Oliver, please. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I've loved it. Thank you. 
So folks, just me again, as always, signing off and just saying thank you so much for listening. Thank you also to all of you who write to me every week. Uh, I love your comments. I'm so glad the podcast makes an impact in a positive way for so many of you. Please don't forget to leave me a review on iTunes. Give me a star rating. Also, if you do have suggestions for guests you'd like to hear from, hit me up on Instagram. It's at Dr. Dave Nicol. So you guys go out there. Keep enjoying the world of veterinary medicine. And as always, be safe, be well, and be happy. Dr. Dave, out.